0: Now, before I begin, I want to extend the offer to everyone listening that if you would like me to include you in my prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you could just send me an email with your name. Ideally, if you have the full Hebrew name, that would be great. Otherwise, just send me your regular name, and I'd be happy to include you in my prayers. And as always, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. Okay, we're up to mitzvah number 83, a really interesting mitzvah, a really fascinating one, a really psychologically intriguing one, and that is the prohibition against accepting bribes if you are a judge. If you are a judge, you cannot corrupt judgment, you cannot taint judgment, and one of the laws that the Torah tells us about this is that a judge may not take bribery from one of the litigants or one of their associates because that is prohibited and that is mentioned actually twice in the Torah in Exodus chapter 23 and in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 16, it mentions it twice. It mentions it actually a third time in last week's Parsha, in Parsha's Tisavo, when it talks about what has to happen on the day one of the crossing when Joshua and the nation cross over the Jordan, and they must make this pilgrimage to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and half the nation goes onto one mountain, and half the nation goes onto the other mountain, and they extend blessings and curses, and one of the blessings is for someone who doesn't accept any bribery, and one of the curses is for someone who does accept bribery. This is mentioned really three times in the Torah. Now, the Talmud tells us, that the prohibition against accepting bribery is not only when you accept bribery to taint the judgment, meaning there's two people here, there's a dispute here, and whoever pays me more, they're going to end up winning. That's the classical bribery. And that's just one aspect of bribery. But suppose the judge says, I'm going to accept bribery, but it's not going to influence me. I'm not going to be swayed to one side. I'm not going to favor the person who pays me the most money. Oh no, I'm going to judge it based on the merits and the merits alone. That too would be a violation of the prohibition against accepting bribery. It's even if you're accepting bribery on the condition that you are going to judge properly, judge based upon the law and the evidence and the merits and not based upon the ingratiation of the person who gave you the bribery. Now, the Sefer the book that we are using for the sacred and noble goal of guiding us through the mitzvot, every mitzvah, he gives us a reason why we do it. Of course, it's not the actual reason. The reason why we do it is because the Almighty tells us, but he makes it a little bit more understandable to us by explaining why it's logical, why it makes sense, what's the framework, so to speak, that we could plugged this mitzvah into to make it palatable and understandable for our small little brains. So he tells us that the prohibition against accepting bribery, even if it doesn't taint your judgment, that is obvious. It's obvious. Because what's going to be? You're a judge and everyone knows that you're very welcome To have a little palm greasing, a little bit of bribery, that's okay and encouraged. But no, it's not going to affect your judgment. Oh, no, you're going to judge based on the merits. And what's going to be? The first time, the second time, the third time, maybe you will judge on the merits. But there's going to be a beating war. And eventually, you are going to be corrupted. And someone's going to give you so much money or the floodgates will open. And then there's going to be a perversion of judgment, And therefore, to get rid of this completely, we don't take any bribes, not monetary bribes, not other forms of bribes as we shall still see, because it could lead to the corruption of judgment. That's what the Sefer Chinuch tells us. The Talmud has a fascinating overview of this mitzvah, and it tells us that once a judge accepts a bribe, and it doesn't have to be even something so valuable, like a huge check or a a big diamond. Even if it's something minor, invariably, the judge is compromised. Invariably, the influence is present. You think that you are capable of separating out the fact that the person who you are judging gave you something, gave you a bribe? No. You think it won't influence you? It definitely does. It is impossible, says the Talmud, to remove the effects of reciprocity. And in fact, the Torah actually says that bribery will blind the righteous. And therefore, the Almighty who created humans testifies in the Torah that in the event that you are bribed, you are now compromised, you are corrupted, you are blinded. He made the rules, and one of the rules of this world is that bribery works. Influence is conveyed via bribery, and once a judge accepts bribery, he is disqualified from judgment on that particular case. Now, the Talmud has a very fascinating take on this mitzvah. It gives us a lot of stories and also the psychology. It tells us that you are not allowed to take bribery, even to judge fairly, because once you accept bribery, it's impossible for you to avoid the effects of bribery. You will definitely try to shade and favor the case in the merit of the person who gave you the bribe. The Talmud tells us that a person goes to the doctor. A person is not feeling well, their eyes hurt. And you pay the doctor, you pay your deductible, you pay your fee, and the doctor administers care. And will it work or will it not? We don't know. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you're healed, and sometimes you're not healed. But bribery is guaranteed to blind you, and you accept even a small token gift from one of the litigants, and no longer are you able to see the case in a balanced and fair fashion. And the Talmud gives some very detailed teachings and stories about the scourge and the perversion of justice Caused by bribery. And it's interesting, the way these stories are framed, it's not talking about corrupt individuals. It's not talking about Tammany Hall. It's not talking about people of low moral standing and character. It's talking about the greatest sages of our people, the greatest sages of their era, the greatest sages of the generation. And they themselves are testifying, even with the most minor bribe, it right away affects them and influences them, it shades their opinion. And the Talmud points out that the Hebrew word used in Exodus to describe bribery is a non-monetary word. It's shochad. Shochad means to bribe, but not necessarily in a monetary fashion. If it was speaking specifically about a monetary bribe, it would use the term betsa, which means specifically monetary. So Talmud tells us that even verbal bribery, that too, where the judge receives no tangible benefit, that too already disqualifies them. And the Talmud gives a story of one of the greatest sages of our history. The, essentially the, one of the, the first of the Amorim, the first of the sages of the Talmud, a name that appears on almost every page of the Talmud, the great sage Shmuel, not to be confused with Samuel the prophet. This is hundreds and hundreds of years later. Shmuel was crossing a river and he needed some help when he was getting on and off the boat. And a man said, here, take my hand. This is an old sage. You imagine an old sage. Everyone would run to try to help them, make sure they don't fall off the boat. And this person gave and extended his hand so he could stabilize himself as he got on and off the boat. So they struck up a conversation. And Shmuel tells this person, well, what are you doing here? He says, well, I have a court case. And you, of course, are the greatest judge in the land. Shmuel lived in Babylon. He's the founder, essentially, one of the founders together with Rav, Rav and Shmuel, the founders of the great Babylonian academies that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years in Babylon, once the temple's destroyed, and after the writing of the Mishnah in the kind of the end of the second century of the common era, the locus, the center, the epicenter of Torah life migrated eventually over to Babylon, and the founders, so to speak, of that world, the Babylonian Torah world, well, Robin Shmuel. So this is Shmuel, obviously not a lightweight and not someone that we would accuse of any impropriety or any chicanery. And he's given the most minor of assistance, just a hand, a helping steady hand to get off the boat. And the man says, well, I have a, I have a judgment. And I came to you because you're the greatest judge in the land. And the rabbi tells him, I'm sorry. It's too late! The ship has sailed! I cannot judge your case because you gave me a hint. You gave me a little boost. You gave me support. I've been bribed. And therefore, I cannot be impartial to this case. And the Talmud gives a bunch of other stories to this effect. Look at it in the book of Chesubah, page 105. Now listen to this story. The Talmud is talking about not someone who actually conveyed a gift. But someone wanted to convey a gift. And it wasn't really even a gift, as we shall see. And the Talmud says that this just radically altered the perspective of the great sage. This is talking about none other than Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, who is Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, why would anyone name their kid Yishmael? Yishmael is Ishmael. Ishmael is the other son of of Abraham. Well, the Talmud tells us that Ishmael actually repented. So he's good. His kids? I don't know. It's a mixed bag. The Ishmaelites. But Ishmael himself, and that became actually a, a Jewish name. Still, even today, there are Ishmaels, Yishmaels who are Jews. So Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, this is actually the last high priest that our nation ever had. The final high priest in the waning days of the second temple was none other than Rabbi Shaul Ben Elisha. He was actually murdered in a horrific way. He was flayed by the Romans. He was flayed alive. Just awful, horrific, brutal, cruel torture that the Romans extended towards this great sage and holy person, the high priest in the temple. But when he was still serving in his capacity as high priest, there was a man who came to visit the temple. Now in the temple, of course, you have the sacrifices, and you have the altar, and you have teams of kohanim, of priests in the temple. You also have the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the judicial branch, so to speak, of the nation, the Supreme Court of the nation, they are permanently stationed on Temple Mount. So it's a place where judgment, so to speak, is juxtaposed to the more ritualistic, shall we say, mitzvos of our nation in doing the sacrifices, etc. So there's a man who comes to Jerusalem. And he comes to the great high priest, Rabbi Shmuel bar And he says, I have a gift for you. Now, what does it mean a gift? This is not a reference to some sort of arbitrary gift. This is one of the 24 gifts of the Kohen. If you're a Kohen, by definition, you are a direct descendant of Aaron, and you are a better person than everyone else. Why? Because you are a direct descendant of Aaron, and other people are not. And by dint of that, you are endowed with a special spiritual status that you didn't earn, it was bequeathed to you. You are someone who inherited it. It's just this hereditary greatness. You're a kohen, no one else's. And there are some perks. The Talmud tells us there are 24 different gifts that are given to the kohen. So, of course, there's the truma, and then there's the pidyon and then there's various parts of sacrifices. The Kohanim do well. They do well. One of the gifts is the Reishis Hadez, which means the first sharing. You share the wool, and the first sharing is given to the Kohen. So now man walks into the temple, and he's carrying some wool. And he says, here, Rabbi Shmuel bar high priest, you're a priest. I can give it to any priest in the world. I want to give it to you. I want to give it to you. High priest, of course, I have the... Ability to decide which coin I want to give to, I want to give to the high priest. So the high priest starts to engage with him in conversation, says, well, where are you from? He says, I'm from this really far away place. So he says to me, I I understand, you're from this really far away place. Why do you come here? There's no coin, there's no neighborhood coin you could give it to? Why do you make this long trek to the temple to give it to me? So he says, well, I figured I killed two birds with one stone. I'm here to judge a case as well. And you're a great judge. So I figured let me give it to you. And once I'm here, I'll be I'll be judged. So of course, we would say, you know what, this is not a classic case of bribery. He has given the coin what the cohen deserves. He has to give it to our coain. It will be a violation. For him to withhold, give it to a coin, and what better coin to give it to than the high priest? In our mind, this will not seem to be such a bad case of bribery. But Rabbi Shmuel Baralish, the high priest, says as follows: He says, "Not only am I not going to accept it, find a different coin to take it. I'm not accepting it. I'm sorry, give it to a different coin, and I'm not going to judge you either, because even though you wanted, because you wanted to give it to me, I'm very tainted." Even though it's mine, really, by right, it's it belongs to the Kohanic dynasty in general, and every individual can be a worthy recipient of it, I'm not going to accept it, A. B, find someone else to judge your case. Well, what do you say? You're in luck. You happen to be in the place that contains the greatest rabbis, the greatest sages and scholars in the entire world. Okay, so they found someone else to take the case. So this individual finds some other coin to give his first sharings to, and finds some other sages to judge his case. And Rabbi Yishmael Baralisha, he was listening into the arguments, so to speak, the back and forth, the deliberations, the 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 stance, so to speak, of all the litigants. And there's a whole debate. That's what happens by a court case. It's not just a quiet library. One side presents the case, the other side presents their counter argument and they duke it out and they try to bring sources to prove the legitimacy of their side. And Rachel Elisha is on, he's in the temple, so he's around and he's walking around and every time he listens in, he's like silently in his heart lobbying for the guy who wanted to give him the racial against, who wanted to give him the first year. And he's like, no, say this. No, 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 don't make that argument. No, 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 say that. Of course, Rabbi Shmuel is a great sage himself. He's not just a high priest. He could have been a judge. But he finds himself silently arguing, lobbying, petitioning, thinking of all the arguments in favor of this one guy he hasn't met before, who just wanted to give him something that really was by right his, and he didn't even accept it. And then he made this announcement. He says the souls that accept bribes should be blasted, should be destroyed. He says, Listen, I did not even accept it. I didn't accept it. And you know what? Had I accepted it, it would have been mine by right. I would have accepted something that belongs to me because I'm a coin. And this person has to give the first share into the coin. Nevertheless, it completely altered my state of mind and completely made me try to favor the person that ingratiated himself to me, how much more powerful is actual bribery when you, A, do accept something that is not yours to begin with, it will completely alter your state of mind. One final story from the Talmud. It's a little bit of a complicated story, but there were two sages really involved here. One sage was visited by someone and he said, I have a gift for you. What's the gift? Some small fish. Let me give you some fish. And he says, well, what are you here for? He says, I'm here to judge the case. He says, I'm sorry, I'm not going to accept your gift and I'm not going to oversee your case. I'm tainted. And he responded by saying, by proving, so to speak, that it's very important that he give the gift. That's fine; we'll have the case judged elsewhere. But I want to give you the gift anyhow. And he quotes the verse in uh, in the Book of Kings. The verse says that when you give a gift to a Torah scholar, it's the equivalent of Bikurim. Just last week, just last, just last week in the Parsha, we had the mitzvah Bikurim, where you bring the first fruits to the Kohen, and the the verse in in Scripture compares that to giving a gift to a Torah scholar. And therefore, this, pers- this person who is coming for a case says, you know what, do me a favor, do me a favor, just accept my gift, I won't be judged by you, but I want to give a gift, it's a great mitzvah, when someone brings a gift to a Torah scholar, it's like you brought first fruit, accept my gift nonetheless. Okay, so the rabbi gave in and accepted this gift. But he said, you know what, let me help you find a different court to judge your case. So he sent a letter to a different colleague of his, to Rav Nachman. And he said to him in the letter, he said, listen, the bearer of this letter needs to be judged. I can't judge him. I'm disqualified. But you judge him. You're a qualified judge. You're a competent judge. You are a worthy judge, a righteous judge. You judge him. I can't do it. Now, the great rabbi, Rabbi Nachman, sees the letter, and he says, oh no, the the other rabbi is disqualified. Why is he disqualified? It must mean that this individual is a relative of his, because you're not allowed to judge your relatives. So it must be that they are relatives. So this is the relative of the great rabbi. I'm going to judge this relative of this great rabbi. But he said to himself, wait a minute, I have to honor the great rabbi. And this is a relative of his. And I'm going to be nice to this relative. And the case was judged, but because the, the great sage was showing favoritism to one of the sides. And even if the favoritism is not in rendering the ruling, but it is in managing and overseeing the case. So to be nice and to be a little, a little more understanding, a little more helpful to one of the sides when the other side of the dispute, when they see that, they say, Oh no, what am I going to, what's going to be the person, the judge is favoring them? And they forget what their arguments are. They get flustered. And that's what happened. The case was judged on the merits. But because in the deliberations and cross examinations and the proceedings of the case, the sage, the judge favored one side. The other side didn't put their best foot forward and they weren't able to argue their case successfully. And as a result, the person who gave the gift to the first rabbi, who sent the letter to the second rabbi, won the case. And then the Talmud says what the consequences of this were. The first sage, Rav Anand, his name was, the first sage, he was a really great sage. How great was he? Talmud says, that he used to get visitations from Elijah. Elijah the prophet became Elijah the angel. Elijah's still alive. And if you are a really, really great sage, Elijah the Prophet will come study Torah with you. And even in recent years, there were sightings of Elijah the Prophet who came to visit some of the great sages of our time. In fact, my grandfather, bless his memory, not one to sensationalize a story he wrote in one of his books about a colleague of his. He said he likely had a visitation of Elijah. So it means if you're really, really righteous, Elijah may come to you. He hasn't come to me yet. I don't know. We're still waiting. But maybe he'll come to you. So Elijah the prophet used to visit the great sage Ravanan. And because of him kind of leading towards the corruption of justice by writing this letter that gave the impression that the person is a relative of his and leading to the corruption of justice, Elijah says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not coming. So uh, Ravanan is waiting for Elijah. Elijah is not showing up. So he started fasting and praying relentlessly. And he beckoned Elijah back. And Elijah came back, but intimidated him and scared him and frightened him. Basically saying, I'm sorry, you're disqualified. Now, the bottom line of this Talmud is that bribery really, really works. And it's really powerful and really dangerous. And it can have such a corrupting influence on judgment Moreover, judgment, and like we've spoken about this in the past, judgment is about us partnering with God. God has his agenda laid out in the Torah, and he's telling us, fallible humans, I want you to adjudicate some of my laws. Of course, within the protocol, within the system outlined in the Torah, we don't have carte blanche to do whatever we want. In a certain capacity, the Almighty tells us, fallible, corporeal humans, I want you to be my partners. This is the ultimate, so to speak, of of humanity. The Almighty created a world and it's unfinished, the Talmud tells us. And we're here to finish it. We're here to partner with the Almighty to complete, so to speak, creation. And the most active way that we can do that is via the execution of judgment. It's very direct. A case comes before us and the litigants are coming to the court to say, what is God's opinion on this matter? And the sage who renders the ruling or the court who renders the ruling is in effect partnering with God. They're saying this is the definitive will of the Almighty, which is a wild thought. And if you misrepresent God, if for somehow you're in the court, and you render a ruling that's counter to the will of God, and you portray it, you present it, it's purported to be the will of God, and you misrepresent that, that's a terrible crime. And there's zero tolerance for any such shenanigans. Even if you lead someone to the corruption of justice, you don't do the corruption of justice yourself. In fact, you recused yourself from the case. But it led somewhere down the line to someone to misinterpret something that eventually led to the corruption of justice. That already warrants that you lose your Elijah visitation. Now the Talmud continues with some fascinating psychology about how it works. Talmud says that why is shochad, why is bribery, why is it so effective? Why is it so potent? to corrupt justice, says the Talmud. When someone gives a gift to someone else, that fosters an emotional closeness between the two people. And the person who receives the gift, they start to view the person who gave the gift as like an extension of themselves. And just like we are not capable of seeing our own faults, or at least it's very hard for us, to see our own flaws and faults, our own shortcomings. We see that very easily by other people, but when it comes to us, we are designed almost to make it very difficult for us to see our own shortcomings. When I have someone else who is like an extension of myself, they are afforded the same charitable justice. And therefore, just like we don't see our flaws, we don't see the flaws of the people that we love, and therefore, if I love one of the litigants, I'll be predisposed to seeing only their righteousness. Says the Talmud, the word shochad, shochad, which means bribery, is an amalgam of two words, shehuchad, shohad, Shehuchad, which means shohad is bribery, shehuchad, that they become one, chad is one, like echad is one. The giver and the recipient become one, they become unified in their heart. Only a neutral party can be impartial, but someone who is influenced by bribery, someone who loves or even hates one of the parties involved is disqualified. Now, I think today there's a lot of science to talk about the law of reciprocity. When someone does something good to you, you feel compelled to reciprocate, to give something back in return. But of course, we don't need the science we know from the Torah. There's a great book on this matter. If you're interested in reading about the science, a great book called "Influence" by the considered to be the the father, so to speak, of of uh, persuasion and influence. And this is about the science of how exactly it works. We don't need the science. We have the Torah and the Talmud showing us how it exactly works. There is a humorous story about this. Whenever we talk about bribery, I like to tell the story in the Volozhin Yeshiva. So this is the kind of the mother of the modern yeshiva movement it was in Russia, and the yeshiva had many students, hundreds of students, but there was a problem with the permitting. They didn't have a permit to run such a large institution. What they would do every year is they would give a little bribe to the local governor and say, well, this is the list and it's a short list and they wouldn't chat because, you know, they got a bribe. That's just the way it works. Some palm greasing, it works. Now, one year, they discovered that there's a new governor in town and he's a very straight shooter, very honest, very honest, very righteous doesn't accept any bribes. So, what are we going to do? We have a big problem here. The yeshiva has thousands and thousands of students, or not thousands, hundreds and hundreds of students, and they're entitled to have—I don't know, forty or something like that. And the only way to get it stamped by the governor is if you bribe him. But this one doesn't accept any bribes. So, they came up with a creative solution. One of the heads of the yeshiva, the famous Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim was one of the legends of the uh, of the yeshiva world. He said, I got, I got this. I got this. He doesn't accept bribes. I'll show him how, how to accept bribes. I'll, I'll, I'll influence him. Watch. So in the middle of the summer, he walked in to visit the governor wearing very thick, heavy winter garments. Thick fur coat and a thick fur hat. And it was the middle of August. And even in Russia, it was really sweltering hot. So the governor started laughing at this rabbi, shows up dressed completely out of season. And he says to him, what are you doing? You look like a clown. Why are you dressed like this? So he responds, he says, well, last night I had a dream. I had a dream and my grandfather came to me in the dream. And he said, there's going to be a massive snowstorm. That's going to happen tonight. So I said, you know what? I want to be dressed properly. For the for the occasion. My grandfather said that in the dream. So the governor started laughing at him. What do you believe in these silly dreams? Really? Really? The great rabbi believing the silly dreams says, listen, we'll make it we'll make a bet. We'll make a wager. We'll have a 25 ruble wager. If it snows tonight, you pay me 25 rubles. If it doesn't snow tonight, I'll pay you 25 rubles. Governor says this is a deal. Of course, that night it did not snow. And the next morning, The governor gets his 25 rubles, and then he gets the registration list, and it's the same truncated registration list, and he rubber stamps it. The bribery works surreptitiously as well. I have a theory that someone could be bribed, and the influence of the bribe will work even if they know they're being bribed. So like, I like telling my kids, I'm going to bribe you. I'm going to bribe you. I want you to do something. It's a little bit difficult for you. I will bribe you. I think even then it works. You give something good and that triggers the response the bribery has. Now, it's interesting. The law against accepting bribery is a little bit different than what we would expect. Now, there's a prohibition against accepting interest. We can't accept interest from fellow Jews. We have to give them interest-free loans. But in that particular law, the prohibition is for both parties. The person who gives the interest and the person who receives the interest are both violating the mitzvah. Here, with respect to bribes, the mitzvah is only upon the recipient of the bribe, to not accept any bribes, but there's no prohibition against giving bribes by the litigants, which is interesting. Now, the law actually states that even though the giver, so to speak, of the bribe is not violating a Torah law by giving the bribe, there is a different Torah law, a non-bribery law, that the person would be violating. And that is the prohibition... Featured in Leviticus 19, in front of a blind person, you may not place a stumbling block. Someone's blind, and you put a rock or some sort of obstacle in their path, they're going to tumble over it. And that's a prohibition. But our sages explained to us that that's not just only talking about a physical stumbling block in front of a blind person. But anything that I do that causes someone else to stumble, whether physically or spiritually or financially or any way, that I do something that causes someone else to suffer or to to stumble, that would be a violation of not placing a stumbling block in front of the blind. And included in that, I cannot set up someone to sin. I cannot design a situation in which the person, some other person, is going to sin. And therefore, if I give a bribe, in fact, I'm placing a stumbling block in front of the other person because they're going to accept the bribe and they're going to violate the law, and therefore I cannot contribute to someone else violating the law, and therefore, even though you will not kind of transgress a bribery-centric mitzvah, you will be transgressing the prohibition against placing a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Now, as you mentioned, at Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, there were blessings and curses, 11 of them to be precise, 11 specific ones and one general one. Blessings conferred on people who do good and curses conferred against people who do bad. And there is a little bit of a curious potpourri of mitzvot featured, but one of them is cursed is he who accepts bribery in judgment. And therefore, this is not just a prohibition that is, so to speak, a general prohibition. It is actually included in being cursed, and that's a terrible thing because the entire Jewish nation accepted this curse, and this uh, is something, obviously, that we do not want to be part of. Now, if someone did accept a bribe, they would also be obligated to return it. It's not something they could keep, They would have to return. There would be an obligation for them. Once they did accept it, of course, they violated that initially, but they must return it. It's not really theirs. Now, the sages tell us that there is one instance where a judge can be compensated, and that's if the person is being compensated for his time. So you're a judge, but you're also a mechanic. And two litigants come to be judged And that means you're going to have to forego the income that you would have made in your other job. You can be paid for the loss of income in exchange for the time that you are serving as judge, provided that they're paying you what you lost and no more. And in addition, provided that this compensation is split up evenly between the two litigants. You can't take you know more from one than the other, that would be a problem of bribery. Now, last year in my Parsha podcast, which by the way I must tell you is nearing the completion of the fifth cycle of the Parsha podcast, which is a very delightful accomplishment. With the help of the Almighty, we actually did a podcast, a brand new podcast, every single Parsha this year. And of course, we're on the doorstep of a new year. So we have three more weeks to finish the entire cycle. Please, God, we'll be able to do that. And then we'll start, of course, a new one. So if you haven't listened to that, maybe give it a listen. Because that is done with a studio environment. There's no one there. You can't come listen live. I guess you could. But there's no one. I'd usually do it myself. Me and a microphone. Me, as I like to say, gesticulating wildly in front of a microphone. Now we're in the Torch Center, so... Usually I do it at the Torch Center. We were just in Canada. I had to do it, find all kinds of creative places to do a podcast because there was no quiet little space. I did many, many podcasts after midnight, which is a thrill. And the problem is once you do a podcast after midnight, you're so wired up after doing it. You finish at 1, 2 in the morning and then you just, you just can't go to sleep. You need like an hour to wind down at a minimum before you can uh, go to sleep. So totally unrelated. Apologize for that little interruption. But the Parsha podcast last year, not this past year, but a year ago, a year plus ago, on Parsha's Shoftim, which is the place in Deuteronomy where it talks about bribery, I did a podcast called Kosher Bribery. And when I was preparing for this discussion, I remembered it and i want to share some of the thoughts that we shared in that podcast you know if you think about it the torah tells us that we can't take any bribery because if you take bribery that creates that fosters an emotional connection with the person that you accept the bribery from and you can't see them in any other light besides for a positive light you can't be a neutral impartial party So bribery is just so awful. It's so awful because it makes you love people. Wait a minute. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Isn't that an ideal situation? You're supposed to love other Jews, love your fellow as yourself. We are told that we're supposed to become like one heart with other Jews. So of course, in the context of judgment, bribery is a big corruption because when it comes to judgment, you have to be completely impartial because you are just channeling you're a funnel of God's take on this issue, but what about in a case that's not judgment ninety nine per cent of our life, probably ninety nine point nine nine per cent of our life is not formal judgment, and in all those other instances, we're told you have to love the people, you have to foster an emotional bond of the people, you have to unite, so to speak, be one entity with your countrymen, with your co-religionists. So there's a good bribery in every other instance. Of course, I'm not talking about flattery or manipulation or exploitation, but building relationships, initiating friendship and brotherhood and camaraderie. There are ways to use this powerful tool for good. The Almighty wants us to not be cloistered up in our own little world. To become people who identify with others, who feel their pain, who empathize with them, who sympathize with them. Who struggle with them, who feel pain with them when they're going through something painful. Who delight with them when they're going through something joyous. That's a good thing. That's maybe one Central component of our spiritual responsibilities, the interpersonal one, is to begin to identify with other people. You start off life, a baby, a baby is completely selfish, completely. The only person they care about is themselves, not their siblings, not their parents, not people suffering in other cities or in other countries or other continents, not even God. All they care about is themselves the way my grandfather explained it, a baby or any selfish person lives as if they're in a windowless room sequestered by themselves. They're alone. They're cut off from everyone else. And God and other people do not take up any share of their focus, of their life the objective of life is to break out of that and to stop being so selfish and to stop living in a little cocoon by yourself and instead to foster a relationship with the Almighty and to build relationships with other people. Our goal, so to speak, is almost like to chisel away at this concrete encasement that we start off life in. And here we see that there's a way to do it. If you take the first step and initiate something positive, it doesn't have to be money. Like we said, it could be a nice word, it could be a nice sentiment, it could be doing something good for someone else, it could be giving them even a hand. Anything good that you do to someone else, that's going to foster a bond. And isn't that what we want? Of course, there are other ways to use this. The Talmud tells us that one of the ways to defeat the Eight is to bribe it. Your body doesn't want to do mitzvos. Your body says, I don't want to do mitzvos. Don't force me to do these things. Well, what do you say? We're going to study Torah and we'll have steak together. Whenever we study Torah, we have steak. What happens now? Suddenly, your body starts to crave mitzvos. Let's study more Torah. I want more steak. That is bribery. That's a very good kind of bribery because you're bribing the would-be antagonists, you're bribing them to be desirous of mitzvot. And of course, the maybe primary responsibility of leaders and educators and parents is to bribe their charges and children and pupils. You want to associate Good habits and good behaviors and good deeds with goodies, with things that they want. You give a child a candy because they did well on their test, you're bribing them. They don't want to study. They want to play video games. That's what they want to do. They want to watch television. They want to ride their bike. They want to fraternize with their friends. They don't want to study but you bribe them, and that's a good thing. So we see that this kind of human nature, we can apply it in very negative ways, but we can also apply it in very positive ways. We could, we could bribe our children, we could bribe our friends to become friends with us, people want to be friends with. We could bribe the parts of ourselves that are resisting to our spiritual ascent. We could bribe them too, and all you need is a little bit, a little sniff of it. And the effects of the bribery are very powerful and almost instantaneous. You could bribe yourself. You could get the parts of yourselves that are resistant, that are recalcitrant. To mitzvos. bribe them. Easiest thing to do. When we finish a book of Talmud, the custom is to make a big feast and celebration. Now, obviously the question you would ask is, wait a minute, you're, you're eating food and steak and meat and wine, and what a delight, what a party. That's a very body-centric thing to do. Why would you link that to finishing a book of Talmud, studying the Almighty's Torah? This is the answer. We still need to bribe ourselves. We face an uphill battle in our quest for achieving greatness. This is a very powerful tool in our arsenal, arrow in our quiver, if we want to actually change. But of course, when you are a judge and you're sitting in judgment, you must be completely impartial. And even the slightest bribery taints you The Torah testifies that you become blind and you cannot see the case and weigh the case and weigh the evidence and assess the merits of the case. You can't do it anymore. You're disqualified. Bribery works really, really, really well. And that's missing number 83, bribes and palm greasing. A judge may not accept bribes of any sort. Even if they think that they are smart enough and clever enough and capable enough to make a Chinese wall, to separate the bribes from the case, they can't do it. If the greatest sages of our history can't do it, certainly we cannot do it either. I think if you for listening to my email address, is Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com Well, how do you spell rabbi? R-A-B-B-I. Walby is a little bit hard to spell. I've seen so many versions of how this word is spelled, but the way... It's spelled, if you want to reach my email address, is W as in whisky, O as in Oscar, L as in Lima, B as in Bravo, E as in Echo at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. And as I mentioned earlier, if you want me to include you in my prayers on Hashem Kipper. send me your name. Ideally, if you have it, the... Hebrew name, the full Hebrew name, which means your Hebrew name and the Hebrew name of your parents. If you have that, if not, just send me your name, whatever your name may be. And I, please God, uh, will try to include you in my prayers on the upcoming days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur.